Before we begin this episode, we will be discussing It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia has some adult themes and some foul language, and I will do my best to bleep what I can throughout, but there will be some elements discussed that may not be for all listeners. We're going to be talking about whores a lot. (laughs) Please bear the first part, not the second part, in mind. Mm. Thank you. Welcome to Storytelling Breakdown. I'm your host, Caleb Meyer. I'm Ben Clever. I'm Steven Stahoski. And I'm Larissa Whitaker. And today we are talking about It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. It is the single longest running half hour sitcom or sitcom in general in television history. It's been, it just started its 16th season at the time of recording this episode. It is centered around four or five folks who work, own, and operate Patty's Pub. The and best despite bar in South Philadelphia. That's correct. And despite all of its successes, its fan base, the amount of years it sustained itself, it has never won an Emmy, though it's been nominated for stunts. And so today we are discussing what makes the show work, why it deserves an Emmy, and we are here to convince Ben and Steven. <laughs> Our esteemed Emmy voters. Of Larissa its value. and I will be running a four year consideration campaign today. <laughs> Oh, boy. It's always sunny in Philadelphia, but apparently it's never sunny at the Emmys. (laughs) Well, the show actually was originally going to be about It's Always Sunny on TV, and it was going to star four people who were like actors to justify them having so much time day to day. And then one of FX's recommendations before the show actually launched was to change the settings. They moved it to Philadelphia because... Charlie Day, Glenn Howerton, and Rob McElhenney, who star in the show, both develop the show and write on the show and edit it and all that stuff. Um, Caitlin Olson joined the cast during the first season, and Danny DeVito was added in season two. By studio demand. They mandated that they needed to get a big-name actor in there. And so, Caleb and I, who are both familiar with the show, have enjoyed it. Um, Big fans love the show. Very carefully selected five episodes to introduce Stephen and Ben to It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia to convince you that it is deserving of an Emmy. You were definitely trying to sell us, given that the first episode uh, featured a game. Yeah. Charity McDennis. In, in concept. Game of games. Uh, and then quickly told us everything we needed to know about the show with how off the rails it went. Yeah, and... that's true. <laughs> it's like the characters consistently do the worst possible thing in every situation. And that's... Something. <laughs> you know, it, was, it is really entertaining in a lot of scenes. God, I just don't know, man. We, we, we'll continue. We're starting off strong. Yeah, so just to give an overview of what, which five episodes we thought were meaningful to discuss, we picked Charity McDennis, The Game of Games, Mac and Dennis Break Up, The Gang Dines Out, The Gang Tries Desperately to Win an Award, in which they satirize the fact that by season nine, they've been making the show for so, so long, never even been nominated for an Emmy. And then Mac finds his pride. Something that's interesting about the show, like Saturday Night Live, folks who have started their careers or spent time in their career with It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia have gone on to achieve projects with critical acclaim. Scott Martyr, who wrote on the show for years, is the current showrunner for Rick and Morty. And during his tenure at Rick and Morty, that show was nominated for Outstanding Animated Program in 2022. And then it also, it 
received Outstanding Animated Program in 2020 when Scott Martyr was the executive producer of the show for the Vat of Acid episode. In 2022, it was for Mort Dinner, Rick Andre. I am Mr. Nimbus. It's that guy. Mm. It's the fish man. Mm. Well, and given that one of the episodes we watched featured Charlie Day breaking out of a basement high on paint, they make great use of memorable physical comedy. So I can see where a stunts nomination, and also I think that tracks timeline-wise, because wasn't that like a season nine episode? The award yeah, because that was the awards. Episode. Yeah, season nine. So that might have been a stunts ep- nomination episode. Or, or, There's or, a lot or of physical comedy with D, too. Mm-hmm. Like you mean like getting trapped in her own wall? <laughs> no, like that's one of the things. But there's times when she's like walked out of buildings and like fell haste, uh, face first into a car, or like there's one where she's like spying in a fish factory and she's up on a ladder and then the ladder falls and she falls onto a conveyor belt because d herself the waitress who works at the bar imagines herself as pursuing comedy being an actress and so she's often trying to prove within the context of the show how funny she is to the guys and so they play off her pursuing comedy and having really bad timing but she's actually incredibly funny on the show to make the case of how it's always sunny in Philadelphia has like led to people. People have started their careers there or spent time there and then gone on to do great projects like be part of Rick and Morty and receive an Emmy nomination or WandaVision, Matt Shackman, who directed WandaVision had directed several, almost even entire seasons of it's always sunny in Philadelphia. So with some context on how, what awards sunny has won, what it's alumni have won, what to you guys makes a TV comedy award worthy? Do you want to start with that, Stephen, or do you want me to? I don't have an answer. I am a very odd duck. I don't really watch TV anymore. I haven't in a long time. I haven't had like just regular TV in my house for a long time. We've got streaming, so and I have three small people. So my TV consumering has been limited to Mickey like, Mouse Clubhouse, Bluey, Bluey's. <laughs> Good. Phineas and Ferb. Phineas and Ferb. Lots of Phineas and Ferb. Lots of Disney stuff. Um, And then other like classic movies that I remember watching when I was a kid. So there's not a lot of regular uh, TV viewership in my house. On top of that, I've never been a comedy person. A couple of episodes ago. Actually, no. The very first episode that we did this season during our movie share, we discussed very briefly. I mentioned that my lowest ranked form of entertainment is horror. And right above that is comedy. So I may not be a very good person to judge I gotta change this your right mind now. on both those things. <laughs> I don't like horror. Now, thrillers are a little different. Like what about horror thriller. comedy? We'll watch Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Oh, great. Yeah, that's that's, that's beside the point. Now, <laughs> my, the thing be is, allergic is that the, to bees. He was running like a bat out of hell. <laughs> the comedy tends to be like, I don't tend to care for sketch comedy. Like Saturday Night Live never has really thrilled me. Movies that have come out of spinoffs of Saturday Night Live sketches have never really thrilled me, with the exception of Blues Brothers. Wayne's World, I liked that one well enough. But then <laughs> things what like... What high praise. <laughs> things like, uh, I don't know, Bro- what is it, Brooklyn? Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Nine-Nine. Brooklyn Nine-Nine, don't care for. So I'm a little You're odd. You're not a sitcom man yeah, is I'm not what a I'm sitcom hearing. person. Are you ever into like adult animation, like Family Guy or Futurama or nah. Rick and Morty or nope. No South Park? I've watched some South Park. I've watched some Simpsons. So when you ask me, 
what is what makes an award-winning comedy i'm gonna have to flat out tell you i have no idea (laughs) that's okay so then in a way you could be open to what the different comedies are that are out there sure you could Mm -hmm. also potentially kind of be in line with the standard or at least where it is because i i think in some ways like award-winning comedy almost feels like an oxymoron, unfortunately. What do you mean, Ben? I say, let let me provide some context. (laughs) So my comedy viewing, I I don't think I would classify as normal either just because as we have come of age, like we were watching a lot of children's television while tuning in at set time, watch set thing was still normal. And as we've come into adulthood, we've also come into the streaming era. And even before that, like my viewing of some sort of community television show in live action would have come by way of, okay, let's get a DVD box set and watch an entire season or some seasons in a row. And that also crossed eras because that would be everything from watching Hogan's Heroes and Get Smart with my dad going back to the 1960s and early 70s. That would also be things like Scrubs, which... Caleb and I dedicated an entire season two episode to our love of Mash and Scrubs, respectfully. You know, I think Scrubs was actually the last legitimate, quote-unquote, television comedy I watched. And that is why I said what I said, because when we were talking about It's Always Sunny last week, and I referenced Scrubs, and we were looking up, oh, like, different awards things, Scrubs also very under-awarded, and I feel like in terms of sensibility, similar in some respects... Because definitely going to be a little irreverent in some moments, going to have some seriousness baked in, but still also be absurdly funny. I mean, Sonny leads more so with the comedy than Scrubs does. But given to what degree I enjoyed Scrubs and I have enjoyed some of the other pieces that we've already brought up, I'm not surprised that I enjoyed It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, but just given the landscape where dramas and thrillers and these bigger quote-unquote more artistic works are going to get the time of day during awards season and things like comedy and genre works usually aren't that's a really artistic or aren't given the time of day. aren't given the time of day thank you for helping me clarify that and that's and that's a hard barrier to get over it's now so for me personally there are so many things that i like about it and i would give it an award stacked up against many other things more than likely but i think you and i do kind of come into this just aware of and or perhaps to a degree representing the landscape that it's always sunny would be up against in this situation. Which makes this for an interesting conversation because I think that I come from a different perspective on what my relationship with comedy has been because it's been a big part of my media upbringing growing up and a big part of what I still enjoy in my day-to-day life. And I think what makes a show in general award-worthy but what would make a comedy award worthy would be people who are interested in trying new things or breaking the mold that exists and playing with it or finding a new voice that is working. Cause if they're finding something new that works, that audiences are engaging with, I think that it's worth acknowledging what those new pathways are instead of just celebrating what has been done before. Because so much of what makes to me, what makes a comedy work just like um, Glenn Howerton and Charlie Dane have described in interviews going over their writing process for Sonny is when it surprises you a little bit. And in order for it to do that, I think they have to keep trying new things with the medium or trying new things with different tones for different shows. And I think Sonny at its origin and even in later seasons manages to do that well. (laughs) 
So just to give you two some context and our dear listeners some context of what an award-winning Emmy comedy series show looks like, these are the last 10 winners of Outstanding Comedy Series. We have Ted Lasso, the two most recent, twice in a row. Haven't watched it. Deserves it. Then Schitt's Creek. Haven't watched it. Then season two of Fleabag. Haven't which watched is weird. it. And I don't know if I'd ca- classify that as a comedy, but that's just me. Then The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Haven't watched it. Then Veep, three times in a row. None of that either. And then Modern Family, two times. I haven't watched any of that. So Megan Gans, who now works. Here's a problem. You notice a trend, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> I've not watched a single <laughs> episode <laughs> of any of the ten previous winners. Of best comedy. So you feel woefully unqualified to vote for the situation, which means you're perfect. (laughs) Yes, you're a perfect candidate. What a show to try to break into appreciating comedy with. It's always sunny in Philadelphia because it's going to push all the buttons you would have as someone who doesn't enjoy comedy. Because it it does. It makes sense that it would do that. But to circle to the award list that you have, for Modern Family, Megan Gans, who currently works and writes on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, is one of the few main like operators of the show who has an Emmy, and it's because of her work on Modern ah, Family. That's very funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you have anything to add about what team makes the show award-worthy? I think just stuff you touched on. I think something that pushes the boundary of what like traditional comedy looks like and, I mean... Based on this list in front of me, the Emmy seems to think it's something that also touches on like heavy emotional subjects, which mm. Sunny does not really do as often. But we are going to talk about an episode that does do that. So I think it does it just not as graciously or dramatically as what the Emmy voters historically seem mm-hmm. to be interested in. It does it by capitalizing and showcasing like your worst possible impulse of how to respond to different emotional situations because the way the show was initially developed, like the concept of it for the very first episode that they shot, because they shot the pilot three times, was the idea of one person played by Charlie Day just hanging out in his apartment and then a neighbor that he kind of knows comes over and says, hey, man, I just brewed a fresh pot of coffee and I realized I'm out of sugar. Can I borrow some sugar from you? And Charlie's like, yeah, I'll give you some sugar. And then he says, well, he, the guy like offhandedly notices um, that Charlie looks like he's been crying and says like, oh, you've been crying. Like, what's something going on? Is something wrong today? And he's like, well, yeah, I just found out that I have cancer. And then the the scene plays out to where the neighbor who comes over, who would eventually become the character Dennis Reynolds, is trying to find a way out of the situation where he's like, I kind of know this guy, but not really. Do I have to stay and talk to him about the fact, like, (laughs) have you told your family yet? Mm -hmm. And he's like, no, I haven't told my family or anything. And so making the show about discussing the worst impulses you might have or like across humanity that a person might have across different social situations to say, do I have to keep like how do I navigate the situation where like am I a bad person if I don't sit here and say but I like I have my hot coffee back at home so like that selfishness coming through to the surface yeah you sent us an interview where they talked about that episode and then I think they also referenced interaction that I'm trying to remember if it was in an episode of real life and I feel like with all it's always sunny that line gets blurred uh, but it was ba- it was a conversation with a, ra- a waitress where she's talking real about, life. I listened yeah, to it where again. she's talking about something <laughs> tragic that's happened. But she's also not circling back to yeah. why they're there. And it's like we don't feel like we can 
like eventually circle back to yeah, I'll have the turkey club. Yeah, <laughs> like, yes. like how do we have this conversation? Mm-hmm. And those just. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. And the show really spends a lot, most of the time, sitting in uncomfortability, whether Mm -hmm. it's creating it for other people um, that encounter these characters or if it's creating it for you as the viewer. They also do a wonderful job of, like, finding a way to make the A plot and the B plot just wall-to-wall absurd. Mm -hmm. (laughs) At least in in what we watch. I I love the... Because I will preface... I think we do need to preface at least Stephen and I's thoughts on the show with we are speaking from a small sample size. Yeah, yeah. Five, only five, episodes. Seen five episodes. I've seen all of them, it. except maybe one because one's been redacted, but we don't have to talk about that. With that 2017 interview from the writers panel between Glenn Howerton mm-hmm. and Charlie Day, they do talk about that, about how they're trying to balance. They say specifically, like, if you watch the show and you see, like, the cancer episode, for example which I haven't watched in a while because I don't go back to the first two seasons as much, but just the concept of somebody going through that hard time, somebody else coming over and chatting with them and wanting to get out of the situation and having that conversation. Yeah. They talk about the idea that they want to make sure they are able to satirize the word that they use is satirize, like these, a specific culture within our society where if you get the impression as you watch it that they're satirizing what it is to have cancer, making fun of what that journey is like, of course you would hate the show. Of course it would be horrible because you would it would be obvious that that's not a thing that's yeah. funny. But if you're satirizing the part where it's like, well, this guy's coming over. And they're satirizing he, like, that in that situation, social... your priority is still your cup of coffee. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The yeah. selfishness there. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And because I think they also talked about like this idea that fans of the show, it's it's usually it's usually thankfully not an oh, I would do that. It's a I've thought of that or like mm-hmm. I have like it's I've had I, that. I, impulse I, yeah, in I the have back of my head. I have reached the conclusion that that is the worst door I could walk through. And it's in some ways almost cathartic to see a show where that door is taken at every opportunity. Mm-hmm. And they let you sit in the awfulness, too, of it. Like, most Sunny episodes, I laugh throughout. But the last 30 seconds, I feel bad. And then I want to go watch another one to try and move out of that feeling. But they usually close most of their stories, as you saw even in Charlie McDennis, The Game of Games, when... Spoiler, Mac and Charlie lose again. Yeah. And the whole episode builds up to you think they're going to win, and then they still <laughs> nope, lose they at still the lose. end. And because that's l- what always happens in Sunny. The worst outcome always happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, and they let you sit in that. They don't try to make you feel better about it. It just is like, oh, like I feel kind of bad for these guys that I was rooting for for the past 20 minutes. That may be why I have not had any desire to watch more than the five episodes I've been <laughs> shown. Because, <laughs> like... It's hard for me to to watch something where I'm not rooting for anyone on the screen in any way, shape, or form. But at the end of those five episodes, I think I wasn't rooting for anyone on the screen in any way, shape, or form. Except maybe one of them. I have a lot of empathy for them, for the characters. I don't think they make good choices. And no, they don't. they're awful people. <laughs> but I, I think that they, the show's first 14 seasons especially do a really good job of sort of creating a world around them where you could imagine why someone would be that awful like mac growing up with a mom who's unkind and abusive to him and a dad who's in prison and he's always writing these letters to his dad and saying they loves him and his dad never acknowledges him so of course that guy's gonna grow up and he might be kind of an 
mm-hmm. don't think that justifies or excuses his behavior. But I, as I watch the show, I'm like, I he, what he's doing is rep like is inexcusable. But I feel sorry for him that this is the best he can possibly do. Frank was as institutionalized as a child. Mm-hmm. He had to get a certificate exonerating him of donkey brains because the other kids were making fun of him since they knew he got sent to the institution. Which is like if you take the comedy out of it and you just like list the facts of these characters' lives, like they're deeply sad and isolated. And the yeah. reason why the five of them are Charlie stuck was together, abused, like sexually assaulted as a child, <laughs> he writes a musical about it. Oh, mm-hmm. go, going going back to Danny DeVito uh, and, and Frank's character, just seeing what I have seen of of his work, <laughs> like that almost feels like right smack in the middle an average Danny DeVito character origin yeah, story. Yeah, that, that, that's <laughs> not wrong, is it's it? It's the right guy for the role. Yeah. No, it is amazing to what extent he is the perfect addition to a cast where otherwise he feels like an outlier. The reason why they have stuck together with each other for so long is that they cannot build relationships with anybody outside of the other four people in their life because of their awfulness and their selfishness like they are that's how they've been mm-hmm. in the position they're in for as long as they're in yeah the gang misses the boat is an episode that focuses entirely on that where they you know as a group something goes wrong again for the millionth time and they decide all right our problem is each other we spend too much time with each other you people are awful and so they all go their separate ways and try to live you know their own lives and they like they can't do it Mm-hmm. So I'm going to move on to the next subject of what do you like or dislike about It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And I will say something that I think is interesting. If my criteria for an award-worthy show is that it pushes the boundaries or tries something new, this show is filmed in a unique way compared to other comedies at the time where it's, is it cross-shooting? Cross-shot? Is that the term? There's two cameras going at the same time so that you can get both the both um, actors reaction at the same time Mm. so that the actors who created the show, who write the show can improvise and take the scene in different directions as it progresses where they would get in arguments because they lucked they they worked and they lucked into having the show itself to where. They had very little experience compared to everyone else who was working for them and with them. So they'd be arguing with lighting directors about where they had to stand or like how they could move the camera through the scene so that then they could get the energy of their friend's reaction to them trying a new riff on the line so that there's an aliveness to the show that I don't think you see in other comedies. There's like a cookie cutter feel to some sitcoms. comedies, Yeah. 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 Where you can see them finding the joke with each other. Like, there's a presence to it, and you can sense that the people who work on the show enjoy being with each other, even if the characters are such awful people to each other. Well, because there's going to be a difference between even just like talking about some of the comedies you listed with, okay, let's look at the last 10 winners. Uh, like, if, okay, if it's a scripted comedy and you know, like, how, okay, where we're going to place things, how these scenes are blocked and shot. Like, and w- when you, in that interview you sent us, they talked about, that process of that it's going to be more organic. It's going to be a situation where, okay, if, if the, if my face just happens to be turned away in this moment, if the scene still worked or the joke still landed, the priority is the comedy. That's fine. Mm -hmm. Like it, it would be taking, I could see where those arguments would happen. If you would be taking a crew who've worked and, and experienced industry folks who have worked in, and in cinematography and in lighting and, are thinking of okay scripted show I know what this is 
but you also almost simultaneously have to treat it like you're trying to get the best footage possible of an explosion in Mythbusters because you don't know what's going to happen. You're going to have to treat it almost more like that. You don't know what direction it's going Mm -hmm. while it's still a scripted comedy. Yeah, it it feels more like a sketch comedy show. It feels, the energy tends to feel a little bit more like Saturday Night Live, feel a little bit Mm -hmm. more live than than any of the pre-scripted comedies, sitcoms, those kinds of things. Because for it does seem to me that a lot of these episodes okay here's how the episode's gonna go well that was a nice script a what actually happened when we shot the episode well i guess that's what we're going with because that's what we have it does feel a lot like there's there's so much improv and there's so much added as they're shooting that it wouldn't work any other way as you go through this i wonder does it read to you as being sloppy rather than as being like no, it's not about being sloppy because it's it's quite clear that they're 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 good at what they're doing, especially by the time we've gotten to the episodes that you had us watch. But it's also it's not a, it's it's not a traditional sitcom. They do an episode where they examine what constitutes a traditional sitcom called Old Lady House, a situation okay. comedy <laughs> uh, where both Max's mom and Charlie's mom live together and they're convinced that the two are abusing each other. So they hide cameras in their house and then start watching them and cutting it together and sort of picking apart like what relationships or ways people are treating each other we're willing to accept in comedies when there's a laugh track added to it. That's oh, a detour, gosh. but relevant. Fair, relevant. It is very, 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 very difficult to pigeonhole It's Always Sunny into any one category based off of the five episodes I've seen. (laughs) Which really contributes to the staying power because something that has... they, They have found the perfect combination of niche audience that has grown over time and time that they have had thanks to having a good network. Yeah, because they the show only made it to season five because of how cheap it was to make. Like, it was still doing all right, but it didn't start to get a lot of traction as far as viewership until the fifth season, which a lot of people think is their favorite season. I'm partial to season eight as well, but season five has some good ones. Um, but the show was so cheap to make that they were able to just keep renewing it without it having a big hit to Fox's budget or FX's budget. Mm-hmm. Well, and it also There's a scrappy quality to it, and I like that. Yeah, I think that comes across. I mean, it feels like the whole art amidst adversity like thing because, you know, they talk about, you know, when they started, they didn't know how to make a show. Like, they'd never, you know, they'd never worked on a network television mm-hmm. show before, and their offices were just in this warehouse, like... On the docks of the city. It was even situations where, like, they didn't have an office for the first season or so where they were riding in each other's apartments on, like, yellow legal pads. When they brought some of their, like, writers into the show. They brought Scott Martin and Rob Roselle. uh, Charlie. Yeah. They didn't know that they needed, like, that the network was going to provide them laptops. Mm -hmm. They didn't know that was, like, like, a standard thing that they could ask for. Because they had no idea how a show (laughs) was made. There is there is yeah, that bit craft of craft services is a thing mm-hmm. that that bit of a plucky upstart nature to the to the show even by the time you get to the fifth ninth tenth twelfth season thirteenth season was the latest we had to watch right so. so there is that but what does it 
to me, my question becomes, what does it say about a show that it took five seasons to get good? I think that it was more about it took five seasons to find itself. There's still funny episodes in the first four seasons, but it really found its stride by the fifth, where what I love about Sunny and its energy is that it does feel like maybe this is going to sound pretentious, but there's a vulnerability to it where there you can tell the people making it are kind of figuring out how to make a show as they do it. And I find that more interesting than seeing another polished product in a row of polished TV shows. Like, I think that there's something authentic that comes through in that about who they are as individuals and what they think is funny as they produce the show. And I think that there's something fun to getting to see just like how a podcast, that Ghostbusters joke you like, Ben, and Ghostbusters Afterlife, <laughs> about how podcasts sort of take some of time to find out what it is. Anytime you're making anything, like the more entries you get into that thing to figure out what it is, they just figured out who they were by season five. But they're still funny really episodes found voice in the first in the four seasons. Yeah, that's a good point, especially in our current time of, you know, all these shows get greenlit for streaming services. Mm-hmm. You know, Netflix True. makes a hundred new shows each year, but like only 10 of them get renewed. Maybe there would be all these amazing shows that just needed time to find themselves mm-hmm. and find their legs. To probably paraphrase, because I know I'm not going to get these exactly right, uh, a- an Irish actor and a Canadian musician, uh, just when it comes to finding your voice on a project, I can't keep them all straight. There's so many like timeline of my career, actors on actors, like different pieces where we get to go in depth and hear about some of the projects that actors worked on over time. Uh, but uh, Killian Murphy, uh, for my first introduction, to him, of course, came by way of the Nolan Batman films, and he talked about playing Scarecrow uh, in whichever piece uh, it was that he was interviewed for, but he also talked uh, extensively about working on Peaky Blinders because he has had years to sit with the character of Tommy Shelby, and when mm. you have years to work on and develop and build a character's headspace, that performance is going to grow and evolve and, to, and really can, mm-hmm. has, the, has the opportunity to turn into something special, and already could have a really strong starting point. I mean, from, from the beginning, he's already doing a lot of really good things and then gets to grow and develop it from there. I also thought of with, again, like the, okay, how long did it take this thing to get good? There was an interview uh, with Alex Lyson and Getty Lee, the surviving members of Rush, with the anniversary of their album Moving Pictures. The interviewer asked Lee pretty early on in the interview about it being the album where they really found found themselves or found their voice. And... Uh, Getty Lee's response to that was basically, I, th- I think we knew what our voice was from the beginning. Moving pictures was just the first time people really responded to us. Mm. <laughs> so <laughs> it was already there. It was just That's a matter fair. of people catching up. But for the sake of, of the, the argument being made, whether or not we should give Sonny an Emmy, the last two winners were both Ted Lasso. How many seasons of Ted Lasso have there been? Three. But that's and the, a very oh, Season different... one and season two were the winners. Season one and season two. So as the uneducated, I'm looking at the previous two winners and going, well, it only took them one season to win. So what's wrong with Sonny? I think it's because they're stylistically very different shows. As someone who has seen both Ted Lasso and It's Always Sunny and in I've Philadelphia. Seen neither, <laughs> so, you know, right? <laughs> like Ted Lasso, I think, might appeal more broadly to Emmy voters. One, because it's something that feels good to watch in this cultural moment and has felt good over the last three seasons and because it really balances being a drama while being a comedy at the same time it does pick apart or like navigate and a lot of those winners tend to blur that line between the drama and comedy whereas i would argue sunny is explicitly comedy yeah and there's a number of ways where you can look at it in that context and see how if not an improvement 
it at least is setting itself apart and making it really hard to classify. Because, yeah, it's not going to stand out in the same way that the dramedies do. It's going to have some of those elements that we think of, okay, it's really committing to being a comedy, but also not running with a laugh track. Or it is going to have these aspects of it where it feels really unscripted and really resonates with an audience with its audience in that way, but it's not shot like reality television, like something mm. like The Office. Yes. So what we think of as some of the most, some of the longest running or some of the most famous or most successful comedies of the last couple of decades, it's very much carving its own path forward. And that makes it interesting and fun to watch once you discover point, that it, it, it hits your funny bone the right it's way. It's been yeah. on so long. It itself has spawned, you know, imitators like there are now shows out there that have been directly inspired by Sonny part of what they're finding as they uh, film the scenes is that the scene begins that's being about one thing but the characters devolve into like the part that they thought mattered they get stuck on something that's way before the thing that matters like they'll be trying to film for example a campaign ad Because one of them is trying to run for political office. They're trying to film a campaign ad. And That's they're trying scary. to decide who gets to be the the, the manager, mm-hmm. the campaign manager. And then it's not just about who gets to be the campaign manager. But between the dynamic of the campaign manager and the campaign, the candidate right. themselves, it becomes not about the dynamic itself, but about who within that dynamic gets to hold the clipboard. The argument is about who gets to hold the clipboard because that's Isn't like it? the least important thing. But like their egos care so much about like the dignity that I get to be the guy who holds the clipboard and you're the guy who... <laughs> and, and just stuff builds out of that because that's, mm-hmm. that's where Charlie being illiterate came from was that episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, hang on. Is he actually? He yes. is illiterate. Oh, gosh. Well, and just watching how the show evolves, again, just the, the trajectory of what we saw. So we saw the game episode first. Then we saw the breakup, which had the phenomenal subplot of the cat being stuck on the wall. Cats mm-hmm. in the walls. And, once, and so once we saw the interactions and the problem solving of that episode, once we got to going out to a fancy restaurant, as soon as you get to the first frame of that episode, you're just like, oh, no. Yeah. You start to get <laughs> a sense. This is not going to be good. <laughs> you start to get a sense as you watch the show. Just like they took a couple seasons to really find the show's voice, you as the viewer are rewarded for knowing what kinds of people they are. Like, as you develop a familiarity with them, the show plays with your expectations of, or like, I wouldn't say it plays with your expectations of how they'll behave, but it capitalizes on your expectations Mm -hmm. of how they'll behave in contrast of how a normal functioning person would behave. Um, They do... When To go back to the five episodes, Ben, that you pointed out that Caleb and I had selected, mm-hmm. we were sort of picking episodes that take you through the arc of Mac's journey through the show, mm-hmm. um, but particularly Mac and Dennis's dynamic. Um, so the first one, Charlie McDennis. All the right, game, the of game, games. game of games. Ah! <laughs> yes. So they basically mashed together all the different board games that they can think of to play. Um, and... I don't, I'm not going to go into the details, listener, of how the game itself works. There's basically three rounds. It is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Like, there are rules that it work in universe for this game, but you don't have to know what they are beyond what is explained to you in the episode itself. I would say that that episode gives you a, a very good example of who each character is. It's yes. probably a, that or the gang gets analyzed, which is an mm-hmm. episode we did not watch. Probably, we debated, Caleb we debated, and I. Are probably the two best introductory episodes to be like, all right, this is each of the five characters and this is who they are and what they do. Because mm-hmm. mm. you get to sense of how they relate to each other with Dean and Dennis being 
twins, Frank being their estranged father and possibly like biologically Charlie's father. Mac is there. <laughs> Mac is there. Mac has anger issues. Mac mm-hmm. has. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What did you like? What did you dislike? Your first introduction to the show. I like when Dennis kicks the cage and tells Frank to shut up dog and throws beer on him. And I like that it comes back later in the episode and he's like, I figured out he's cheating because the beer was water. Yeah, there's intentionality in what happens within the episode. Yeah, there's there's intentionality in the chaos. I, I think that's so, so funny. Confused by what I was watching that first episode. But did you feel what a synonym for what you're describing, Stephen, be surprised? No. Or well, overstimulated? Yeah, maybe that. Mm. <laughs> it was a lot. It's a lot to take um, in. But I think you're right in choosing that one to go first. It does really definitely intru- introduce you to what the characters I would later to come understand come to understand to be. That very first episode, I was just... I was confused and also confused in the sense of why am I watching this ridiculousness? <laughs> However, For fun! Because I'm here and I agreed to do this. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was it, like by the end of it, I was laughing and I was having a good time. It was fun. Um, what jokes do you remember if there was a particular joke that got you or had you convinced that was like or that made you get You know, I do. I do agree with Caleb. I loved how the wa- the beer <laughs> quiet dog <laughs> came back to haunt them later. That was definitely fun fun little twist in the right there but i don't remember a specific joke being it's just that that mac and charlie always lost and that dennis and d always won Mm -hmm. was like oh yeah i've played that game before it doesn't matter how many times i play this game they're gonna win i'm glad they gave a reason i like the reason oh that mac that um i've I've been on the i've been on the receiving end of it doesn't matter what i do i'm gonna lose which is maybe why i play so many spite decks very, yeah, magic. very true. <laughs> uh, I think it runs the gambit of comedy, though, too, because you get set up and payoff with they nail the board down and then yeah. Mac tries to rip it up later, which they talk about. Yeah, 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 yeah. You get the beer thing paying off. I will forget later that it is nailed that down. That is nailed down. <laughs> they also get just that like weird out there humor where they're throwing darts at Dennis's hand and they just nail him right in the middle of his hand and he just doesn't blink, uh, doesn't yeah, move like, an what inch. The, what the absolute <laughs> I also almost brought up my magic decks in this conversation just because I have to be very deliberate about how I introduce my horror tribal deck. <laughs> so, yeah, so it doesn't yeah, sound like you have a horror Frank. tribal yes, deck? Yes, exactly. So, uh, in terms of things that this episode made me think of, like with the initial introduction, my brain went to Almost Famous because there is a scene in that movie where I think it's the band manager explains the concept that managers for a bunch of different groups have created a game that is designed to be played in any condition. However, that game is extremely simple and it becomes clear within the first two minutes of this episode, this is insanely complicated, but it makes perfect sense that they came up with it mm. in it's whatever condition they would have been in. And very complicated yeah. at once. And it makes, the, in terms of things that stuck out to me so well, like, like this is, again, Stephen already touched on it, the perfect way to be introduced to their dynamics, although I found the one odd aspect of it to be the fact that Dennis and Mac were not paired up. It became very clear as we watch different. more episodes. They they usually are. Yeah, mm-hmm. I would never have called that Dennis and Dee were twins, mm-hmm. let alone related. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, cool. So that's the couple, and the rest of them are the third wheels. But they all hang out. That's how mm-hmm. I would have called that with just the one episode. It makes sense because Sunny does break a lot of the sitcom molds. Where there's they even make fun of this and. Um, the gang tries desperately to win an award, that there's not a will they won't they or like a romantic tension in mm-hmm. the show beyond maybe Mac and Dennis, 
but also not Brittany. Not really, Mac. It's yeah. clear that Mac yeah. is pining after Dennis, but Dennis is not at all interested in Mac. And the two things that also stuck out to me with this episode, in terms of like thing that was funniest to me, really wasn't even a joke. It was just the juxtaposition I happened to seek out and find Mac's facial expression right as they are about to look at the coin flip and then when we see the result after that's <laughs> happened and just the different on his in his expression in each shot mm. is so funny at least Between it was to me the yeah, hope that yeah. he might win yep. and the crushing defeat yep absolutely or even just the yep. physicality that danny devito brings to his role where yeah. like with that coin flip where he flips it and then just slaps it on his big bald head uh, and walks up to show them the way he says coin. Coin. For those like of you who are less familiar. Any, do any of you have family that have lived in or do live or grew up in Philadelphia? No. No, but. Okay. I do. Is it accurate? Very. It's <laughs> <laughs> weird. My, so like my mom's side of the family, they're all East Coasters, mm-hmm. particularly mom grew up in Downingtown, which is outside of the main city of Philly. It's one of the suburbs. And so my uncle up until recently also lived out there. And there were a couple of times where we went out and we did go to downtown Philly and we went and we saw all the historical spots. We went to Sonny's, not Pat's for <laughs> a reason. Pat's. No, no. So there's two there's two oh, okay. Philly steak shops in Philly. Oh. There's Sonny's and there's Pat's. And you Intriguing. are one or the other, and the better is Sonny's. Good to know. All right, we just alienated half of the I know, half of Philadelphia. I know we did, but it's true. <laughs> Okay, oh and yeah, no, like the, the it's it's crazy. The East Coast accent is is very entertaining. Well, so, and when it comes to everything about Frank Frank's character, because something else that I really liked about him in this episode, I feel like he is a situation he probably ends up in a lot. Again, five episode sample size, so I'm projecting here. Uh, they make great use of him as the uninitiated, yeah. because if you are writing anything and you have a really complicated s- situation that you need to explain to your audience, you throw in one character in that situation who is the uninitiated. And then it gives every other character who knows something about what they're dealing with an opportunity to explain it to them. It's something that Stranger Things does every season. So they're mm-hmm. constantly bringing new people into the fold. Uh, one example that comes to mind. But that is just a solid way to convey that information in an interesting manner so it doesn't feel like an info dump and you're learning that information along with the uninitiated and frank is perfectly suited for that (laughs) not i feel like in general not just in this episode but in Mm -hmm. this episode especially it's wonderful i agree ben for those for listeners who haven't seen the episode we are talking so much about coins because at the end of this long battled board game the winner is ultimately determined by flipping a coin after that we showed them mac and dennis break up which, yes, the B plot is arguably much funnier than the A plot in that episode with the cat stuck in the wall. But what makes it so compelling? So Mac and Dennis break up is an episode where roommates Mac and Dennis Reynolds. Mac has a full name. His name is Ronald McDonald. Mac McDonald. But he goes by Mac. And uh, so Mac and Dennis live together as roommates. They're men in their 30s. Everybody in the show is in their 30s besides Danny DeVito at this time. <laughs> Of filming. <laughs> and Dee lives on her own. Um, she recently got a cat. And then it also you get a glimpse into Charlie and Frank's living situation, Charlie and Danny DeVito's living situation, where they share a studio apartment and sleep on a pull-out couch together. Well, not a studio apartment now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what they treat as a studio apartment. In the most recent episode, they revealed that there is a bedroom in that apartment that 
Charlie just never uses. It's completely empty. He likes it's one of those doors in the Frank. background. Yeah. <laughs> he prefers to co-sleep oh, with God. Frank. So. Yeah. That's they terrifying. sleep on the pull-out couch together. Yeah. Yeah. But yep. at the start of the episode, um, Dee calls out uh, Mac and Dennis for how codependent they are on each other, and then they break up, and one of them, then the plot continues. This and Dee's cat gets the, stuck in the wall. Yes. I love the, ca- I love the cat subplot. But however, this, ca- this episode was the most sitcom. Mm-hmm. I agree. Like traditional sitcom of the five that you showed us. And it, I mean, it felt like I was watching Friends or How I Met Your Mother or yeah. Seinfeld. You know, it was it the pacing, the a, the action, the setting all just flowed that same. Mm-hmm. Take your leading of, duo and have them have a fight. That's, yeah, that's common. Yeah, very much so. So from from that sense, going from the board game where I was confused and overwhelmed to this was like, oh, OK. I understand this. I might mm. not necessarily go out of my way to watch this on a regular it's basis. It's familiar. But at least mm-hmm. I understand this. Um, that said, I actually really enjoyed that episode more for the B-plot than anything to do with Matt. The cat in the wall. And, and Dennis breaking up. The cat in the wall part was very, more, was very entertaining. But what I did like was seeing how the writers handled a breakup between two people who are supposedly platonic roommates mm-hmm. because they treated it just like a breakup between two people who are way too romantically codependent. <laughs> and that was entertaining. So from what I understand, again, small sample size of episodes, uh, things like the references to like body mass from Mac, <laughs> fairly normal thing that he brings up, or yes. brings up regularly. Yes. Okay. But Dude's physiques I, are yes. big like thinking point for Mac but on a day-to-day. I appreciated in this episode, in the A-plot, just how far can you stretch absurdity and how much mileage can you get about jokes centered around what they're watching on movie night mm-hmm. or apple seeds. The <laughs> fact that either of those jokes they went, went as far whole yeah, episode. Went as far as they did was a master class. Like mm-hmm. and and then and then at that point the the at that point the cat subplot Honestly, I can't believe I'm saying this in the only in only the second episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia that I've watched. That subplot playing out exactly as expected <laughs> was so wonderful. <laughs> I'm, I'm just I'm watching a thing and it's just like there's going to be so many cats in her apartment walls by this is done. It's just it's just gonna be a matter of who and how many and, and her. how the progression goes. Mm-hmm. I knew and somebody stuck in the wall. I knew somebody was gonna end up in the wall. I did. Yep. And somebody did. D did. And that that was fine. <laughs> What I, I going back to just like the jokes, the two jokes where I'm like, there's no way you get more than maybe one or two uses out of this, and they ran the whole episode. They also were continuously funny the whole episode. Mm-hmm. Like they weren't just like, oh, cool, yeah, we're back to yeah. that again. No, they they were different and, and it kept new surprising every time. You. Those two and the toe knife. The toe knife. And the toe knife came back. It exists through the whole run of the show. It comes back in other episodes. Oh, for Pete's sake. There is an episode where they go on Family Feud. It's called Family Fight. Of course. And one of the things, one of the questions that they asked is, what's it, you know, something you use to groom yourself? And Frank's answer is toe knife. (laughs) (laughs) Which is the knife he uses, of course, to trim his toenails, as one does. And maim himself or there's a different episode there's a different episode where mac is trying to play both sides so he always comes out on top but he keeps telling everyone that that's what he's doing but to prove his loyalty to these people he keeps trying to 
form a blood oath with them. So he cuts his hand open and he goes into their apartment and he cuts his hand open and he uses Frank's toe knife. Oh no. And there's another one in season 12, I think. It might be the season. Maybe it's later. But it's one where they parody romantic comedies and Frank bonds with the, a, a, a European man who has a toe spoon. <laughs> So it's not just that episode. It's the whole run of the series. They bring these jokes back, and oh, it, it's sake. still funny every time. It, uh, you know, props to the writing, I suppose, because that is quite clever. Oh, my word. Yeah, just finding the different ways to bring that in. Yeah, I guess I'm with you on the fact that this one felt more standardized, but also still told us everything that we needed to know about how Sunny functions. Because, again, it was the perfect setup for what followed. Because now that you know, okay, they're going to take the worst possible door every time. Every time. Oh, no, we're in a fancy <laughs> restaurant. Yes. Fancy the restaurant. possibilities are to our endless. Third one, which was the first episode that had other people outside the game themselves involved. That you had seen. Yeah. That's the fair. first two episodes yeah. we showed you guys was just was the just five the of them together. Yeah, and then fine. this is taking those five wonderful, crazy people and sticking them out in the world. It was terrifying. So the gang and I loved it. <laughs> That's actually this one might be my favorite. The gang dines out is your favorite. That one might absolutely be my favorite. This is the one where uh, Frank and Charlie are celebrating the anniversary of the two of them living together. So they're out to have a nice dinner. And Mac Mac and and Dennis Dennis. have their monthly fancy dinner night. And Dee is there with a Groupon deal separately. (laughs) Because gosh darn it, the woman just wanted to have a nice meal. Okay. What was it that you liked so much about this one, Stephen? I think part of it is because, like, I've worked in restaurants for so long. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I started working restaurants when I was 15. And I've seen this kind of crazy bullshit <laughs> actually happen. <laughs> and I've been the waiter in these situations where I'm like, this doesn't happen in real life. No, it, it does. And unfortunately, I've been involved. Um, so that was a lot of fun to to just be the fly on the wall this time around instead of actually there. I loved just the, rep- the, again, repeated jokes carried through the episode. Dennis's chair being too close <laughs> to the door out of the kitchen drove me. I mean, that was, I found that very humorous because as a waiter, you're going to literally, you're going to tell that guest, hey, I'm really sorry. Can you move? And you're not going to just smack them with the door. But that's exactly what happens in the episode. Mm-hmm. He gets smacked with that door like, Six times, probably only three, but it felt like six. Yeah, and that was that was very entertaining. I don't know the whole taking this absolute dumpster fire of a group of people and putting them in the wild. Yes, because that's part of what makes Sunny work so well. Is that like the world is the world as we it's know a normal it. it's world, normal world. Yeah, but it's these like any time you have encountered someone on their worst day. It's imagining what the rest of those people's lives looks like. We didn't get really into it with the five episodes with the five episodes that we showed you guys, but Charlie is obsessed with the waitress. She is this coffee waitress. He stalks her. He's obsessed with her. He's always trying to get her, you know, to marry him, be involved mm-hmm. with him or whatever. There's an episode where he ends up dating this very rich, very, you know, well spoken, intelligent woman. Who is like, not the waitress. Who is not the waitress. She's like a New York socialite, million dollar family, whatever. And she really likes Charlie. And then at the end of the episode, you find out he was faking that just to get the waitress to be jealous at him. 
and like <laughs> totally <laughs> turns down this woman who would be amazing for him and is like, I would never be interested in you. I'm only trying to get the lady I'm obsessed with. Yeah, every time you think something good is going to happen in their lives or for other people, they just pull that rug right out from under you where he's like just was using her the whole time to get this woman he's been stalking who we only know as the waitress because nobody in the show seems to know what her name actually is. No one knows her name. I think that might be my biggest problem with the show, though. Mm. What you just said. It's like every time you think something is good is going to happen to a character, they pull the rug out from under you. It feels bad. I feel like we get enough of that in my daily life. Thank (laughs) you much. I don't want to watch that again on TV. I want to watch something different in my active reality. I thought you were going to say TV dramas, and then you went in a direction that I was not expecting. No, no, no. (laughs) Went went straight to the reality. No, it's not that bad. It's not. It it isn't, I swear. But it does feel a little bit like that, and I think that might be my biggest problem with, with Sonny, and it's been my problem with other shows in the past, too, where it's like, I don't know why I keep watching this because nothing good ever happens. Mm. Why would I want to watch something where nothing good happens? It doesn't feel good to you to watch. I want like to see enough. something good mm. happen. Otherwise, it's like I get done and, and maybe it's maybe it's something wrong with me. But I get done and I, now I feel bad. I feel like nothing good has happened. And I don't want to feel that way because I've got enough crap I got to take yeah. care of. In my the only life. nice thing about Sunny is even though stuff always goes horribly for them. At least it's funny. They, they're always... <laughs> They're, it's a sitcom still because they always go back to status quo. It's always yeah. back to the five of them at the bar doing crazy schemes, <laughs> yeah. crazy True. stuff. You True. proved to us that you could watch five episodes in any order from the run for the most part and have a certain level of success and enjoyment. Yeah, and it might you, be richer if you've seen others, but you could hop around. Yeah, if you've never seen Sunny and you're interested or so inclined, my advice would just be go hop on and scroll through and if an episode catches your interest just pick that one I you, know, you don't have agree. to watch it in any order yeah and i think that's like if i were to really find myself to try and and sit down and enjoy sunny i'd have to do it like one or two episodes at a time every couple of weeks <laughs> it's a lot <laughs> i think so too but plus there's 16 seasons now so that's no like the viewing experiences you've described yeah. like just sitting down to watch it is a lot i don't think it's not something i could binge you know i can't even binge peaky blinders I've sat down and I've watched I can only get through maybe one or two episodes at a time and that's it man I would when a a new season would drop I would watch it all in one second I couldn't (laughs) the last time I did that I did that with uh, The Last Kingdom the that's definitely lighter third season of The Last Kingdom or the most recent season of The Last and I was an emotional wreck for like two weeks after the end of that and so it's like I don't know if, if it's if it's just my mental state now but I can't I can't sit down and binge Shows where there's a consistent downtrend for the characters. That things continuously go bad. Because at the end of it, I'm like, well, now I feel like things have been continuously going bad. And that's not necessarily the case. Mm. But that's the, way I, that's the way I end up feeling. Though that said, I think there's almost a cathartic level of gallows humor to be found in watching a situation where you know it's going to be a disaster in slow motion <laughs> and you're here for every second of it. The cover noise is off. Yeah, the, uh, I'm just not the type of person who gets it throughout watching an automobile crash, especially when it's my automobile. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's where you're coming from. Uh, but it's not your automobile. No, right, exactly. So it makes it extremely enjoyable to come in because by the time we got to Dines Out, I kind of knew what I was expecting and... Yeah, pop the popcorn. It, it's yeah. going to be a disaster, and it's going to be hilarious. I think same, in in a way. I did definitely feel like, okay, we got to Dines Out. 
the gang dines out and I'm like, yeah, okay, I know what I'm going to expect. This is going to go from bad to worse. And it was my favorite because it was set in a restaurant. I understand restaurants. I loved it. But you've worked in a bar too. And, and I've worked shows bars. Set in a bar. I know, right? Also true. I've worked bars and restaurants since for forever. And, and actually now I really don't. I miss it. I do. However, for the most part, this one was my favorite because it was the most spectacularly public meltdown I think they, they had that we saw. And I loved it. That uh, we saw. <laughs> Being the operative part. Yeah, I know. What I think The Gang Dines Out does so successfully is that it's a perfect example of char- of how these characters get in their own way. Because all five of them start this evening with the intention of just having a good night. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones who ruin it for each other and everyone else around them. Yep. Mac and Dennis are immediately preoccupied by the fact that Charlie and Frank are there and haven't like paid tribute to them or said hi. Dee can't relax and enjoy a nice meal because she feels so self-conscious the entire time about the fact that she's dining alone. And while each of these things are like blown to ridiculous and absurd proportions, they're all rooted in a real feeling or experience that someone can relate to or connect with. Like I've eaten by myself as a woman alone and you feel self-conscious sometimes. So the kernel of that that's fueling her Mm -hmm. uh, outlandish, obnoxious behavior feels real. Like running into people you expect to say hi to you in public and that tension of like, do I say hi or do they say hi or it's weird that they didn't say hi, should I go over and say hi? That's real. And then these characters just spin it out into these ridiculous scenarios. And I think that's why, you know, it is easy to relate to a lot of this stuff because it comes from that kernel of truth. You might have a crazy business idea, but you're really excited about it. But, like you know, kitten mittens. Like kitten mittens. You know, you wouldn't necessarily <laughs> take it to the level that the sunny characters do, but... You know, you can, again, it's going through the door that you would never go through and you get to see that. Well, I mean, you and I have, have kind of had this uh, experience of do I say hi or do I not say hi at a restaurant recently? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I stumbled in on you having lunch with someone and I'm like, yeah. oh, do I do I say anything? Do I not? Yeah, I'm just going to pretend like they don't see me. They saw me. Crap. Now I got to say hi. Well, wasn't it more than once? Because I, I. Yeah, no, like, that's we, actually yeah, happened. Yeah, because yeah, we, we, yeah, we were talking about this. I, 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 really either, often. I either said you either have a job downtown or you are the world's worst PI. I know. It's because I have a job downtown. <laughs> Um, that's no, you just always have to come whenever we have lunch. You know, uh, oh, you, fancy fine. That's you guys fair. here. <laughs> I'll go. I'm gonna sit over in the corner though. So it feels like I'm not here with you. Take my camera. <laughs> twice. This happened twice in like the span of a week. That's yes, super weird. It was, it was, it was very on the same wavelength. This episode spoke highly to me. Because I also I love that it. at the end of this episode, you get to see how, you know, the gang hates each other so much because they're fighting with each other the whole episode. But then immediately, immediately at the end, they all turn on the waiter and they come together as a group <laughs> to hate the person outside of their group. Yeah, they're united in their awfulness. The because one poor man yeah, just trying to do uh, his job. Exactly, yeah. because at the very beginning of the episode, one of them states, like, it would be really funny to see a waiter with spaghetti spilled all over him. And then D makes that Check happen. Check off spaghetti. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, <laughs> so at the end when it happens, like, they are all brought together by their shared desire to see someone have a big plate of spaghetti spilled all over them and once again they're united in their awfulness i don't know if it's the specific desire to see the spaghetti spilled over or if it's just a specific desire to see the world burn no i was very specifically (laughs) stated about spaghetti for mac (laughs) and for dennis it was for frank and for charlie now i don't know about that and for d i think it's just she likes to watch other people suffer 
Well, I thought yeah. we established that the psychopath is Dennis. Dennis, so show Dennis and D are show psychopaths. Yes. D, I think you could argue, is more like Dennis seems like he has an actual psychological condition. D, I'm sure they all have things that you can well, diagnose. But D, I think. Dennis might be a serial killer. But what I think happens to D is both. Is both like she's predisposed to awfulness, but even among the five awful people, she is constantly the most maligned. Yeah. Like she's treated the most poorly. There's an episode where they talk about their version of the five man band and they're trying to figure out like which one of them is the <laughs> who's the brains, who's the looks, who's the wild card. And then they determine that D is, of course, the useless chick. <laughs> That is uh, the original version of the five-man band. Again, when we first brought it up on this podcast, I did not realize to what extent Red from Overly Sarcastic Productions had cleaned that trope Mm. up. But to move on. The episode that inspired this episode of the podcast, the gang tries desperately to win an award. Where they very explicitly or um, satir- is sa- is this the way to use the word satirize? It's a yeah. it's a very satirize. meta episode about them yeah. talking about the fact that they've never won an award. So they are trying to appeal to the local neighborhood bar association that they should deserve the yeah, best see, bar don't, award. Don't say it that way because you say bar association and my brain immediately goes to lawyers <laughs> because it's a bar. Association. I think that might be what they call it. Well, Charlie is an expert in bird law. He is. <laughs> <laughs> He's gone toe to toe. He's gone tip for. T- we win some we lose some <laughs> either way they go to the neighborhood uh, yes they're trying to win the best bar. bar yeah oh, the gastropub yes. organization mm-hmm. can we put it that way yeah just so my brain the new girl lawyers, of the other bar yes because there's this other bar that's only been open for a couple years and it's already won all these awards and is super popular and it opened up just down the street as yeah. new girl aired on fox and they were airing on fx yeah and, and so, it's a yeah. dynamic of like three or four guys and one girl mm-hmm. and they're up into schemes. And it's very bright and colorful and fun and happy, which to be fair, I will say on the podcast, I also love New Girl. I do too. I've watched that show to death. But it, it <laughs> does take the same energy of what Sunny is. Well, I'm sure it's in different directions. That could be a whole other episode. But it's the one that's been accepted as a award. As a mainstream yes. award winning, yeah. I think the gang tries desperately to win an award is a great example of how the show has satirized different things in the past. It does a really good job of talking about what it's talking about, but never doing that at the expense of its comedy. But I love that the whole episode, you know, it's them trying to fit into the mold of what's acceptable, what's popular, what's mainstream. And then by the end, they just turn back into themselves mm-hmm. and Charlie's singing a song about spiders. <laughs> yeah. The worst part was that the first song he wrote was good. It was actually good. Yes. And the group hated it. <laughs> like a Randy it. Newman type yes. song. He, it really it. could have won an award. It was sweet. And the, the they gang is just lock him in the basement. Then it was, then then the it was Randy the Newman patrons. on paint. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they go back to being themselves and they're, ha- they're proud and happy to be themselves, but they are still at the end. Like, Oh yeah. I really would have liked to have won that yeah. award. Yeah. Yep. I love that. And this was, it's so, a journey of self-acceptance. It's, it's very honest. Yeah, yes, it is. Yeah, no, because it is ultimately a, a scenario where if you're looking at, okay, what gets the accolades and how much of myself would I have to give up to be the ideal version yeah. that seems to get those accolades. And yeah, that's a wonderful story to go through that process and realize it's better to be you than be someone else and have a shiny object on your shelf. Which is a really profound observation for a show this absurd to have. Although maybe not so much in this late in their run. Yeah. I mean, they would have been so successful to, or at least had, had, had proven staying power at that point. And so 
it does at the same time kind of feel like a middle finger to yeah. anyone who would not like, give I think yeah. it's a middle finger and yeah. also like talking about something that does bother you because you yeah. can you can accept something about yourself that you're fine with but yeah. like it can still bother you to some level yeah i think that's fair i think this was the first episode where i started to lose it again because i don't necessarily enjoy when the fictional show i'm watching starts getting a little too close to reality and so this is one of the first ones as a man who watches lots of historical dramas. i know i know that's different <laughs> <laughs> history is different Reality now is not fun. Um, history really wasn't fun either. There's lots of terrible, terrible things. But this is the first one of the five that we watched. And then and the, this one and the next one where things got very, very much current to where the show was and to what like maybe we experienced in our day to day. And you lose me personally a little bit with that just because when I turn on a show or a game or a movie, I don't want what's going on current. I want something not. You want an escape. I, yeah, I and definitely go to... And when it like, brings to, you back to reality, it's hard to have I, that sense of escape Definitely. You. I go to movies, video games, card... I mean, even board games, D&D, mm -hmm. uh, TV to escape reality because I, I live that every day. I need a break. And that's why I turn to these things. So when my escape becomes a little too close to reality, you start to lose me. However... This episode was ex absolutely excellent, and so I loved funny. I loved the call out, particularly of New Girl, because I never really cared for that show either. <laughs> However, <laughs> um, it does feel a little bit like they were getting too current. I guess is is was was my only argument against against this episode. However, it was well executed. It was still funny. There were some of the jokes where they were sitting in the quote unquote stand in for New Girl. They're sitting in that mm -hmm. other bar. And at first they're all like, man, I hate this. This sucks. This is awful. And then by the end, they're like, we love this place. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, it's like you watch it long enough. You're, yeah. you're going to get converted. Mm -hmm. It's what's going to happen. But that's also a really smart way for them as professionals in their industry to manage both criticizing what's winning awards, but also being like generous with their peers. Because they could have just like oh they could have just made fun it. of it the right. whole time right. and not had the characters come around to liking it like they still the, the episode itself is even arguing like yeah we're pissed off that you've never given us award but from start to finish they're kind of like but we kind of get it yeah they're like maybe it's us maybe it's our fault <laughs> yeah and and so that's one of the strengths of the episode for sure and I and I do really appreciate that even in the end they kind of acknowledged okay well we're us we do what we do and you can like it or get stuffed and they did not break for a second from every setting of the episode every opportunity presenting an opportunity for them to go down the worst rabbit hole possible mm. I mean, everything from just the horrible meeting in the office <laughs> with the bar association at the yeah. beginning to the immediate downhill trajectory of the sexualized language being used to describe a drink order or whatever. Yeah. And it just, yeah. like, as soon as Mac is starting to emulate that, it just keeps getting worse. And, and then it's light and yeah. playful. Yes. And then as soon as, or, or, or just, or as soon as the word burlesque came out of Frank's mouth, I knew it you was know gonna you're be in bad. trouble. It's real, real class. <laughs> Come and back here no, to the back so room. It like, went no, exactly do where you were expecting. And and the There's self a man crawling yeah. out of your floor. <laughs> <laughs> and the self awareness spider, spider, is breathtaking. Spider. Other thing I will say, because your bird law point reminded me of this, because I saw some post on social media that was like, 
if you could play any It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia character as a D&D character, who would it be? I feel like it would be so fun to be the Charlie character. He'd be the so- most useful. Who, as soon as you are dealing... He kills rats. Yeah, as soon as you're dealing with <laughs> Eric, Eric Okra politics, <laughs> he's suddenly your guy. Eric Okra. Okay, now we're going to have to do that. Oh, gosh. I like that this episode has that sincerity and that ending on acceptance of yourself, mm-hmm. which leads into the last episode that we showed you guys. Max finds Mac his bride. Finds his bride. I'm sorry. No, you no both, you're excited. You, you okay. both, yeah, you both have so much enthusiasm for this which has made this Im- so much fun. Oh, I to, love this to, show to so much. Through. I think yeah. about it all the time. I go back well, and watch it. It's always and on the shelf. the one who got me to watch it because it always been on my radar for years and I was like, oh. I love, uh, I love Charlie Day. He's one of my favorite actors just yeah. like from Pacific Rim and stuff he's been in and I love Danny DeVito and then, you know, I'd never gotten around to watching it. On and some of its parts. When you came onto the podcast it. and were like, oh, it's my favorite show. Like, I love all this stuff. I was like, all right, well, now I finally got to give it a chance. And then I got obsessed with it. <laughs> it's that good. <laughs> I was just going to lead into, again, some standard sitcom of A plot, B plot, B plot being just the horrible nose injuries and their progression you gotta stuff up the blood i gotta stuff up my nose i'm gonna explain slowly but surely expanded until he pulled to the point that he starts to look kind of close to the makeup job he had as the penguin yeah it was bad we are of course talking about danny devito portraying Uh. frank reynolds so mac finds his pride is another metatextual episode this episode is the journey of mac who has come out in the show as gay, sort of finding his pride so that the rest of the gang can get him to dance on the pride float for the Philly Pride Parade. And so when Frank goes to get Mac for this mission, um, he opens the door, door flings back and smacks him in the face and gives him the horrendous nosebleed. Yeah, breaks his nose and it's bleeding everywhere. <laughs> and he keeps stuffing it up. And so this and episode is treated and worse and worse. Yeah, eventually he looks like Chunk from the Goonies. I mean, he looks worse <laughs> than that. <laughs> I mean, good grief. And then it's it's like a balloon. His head just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And so this episode came about because around seasons three or four, maybe a bit sooner, they kind of found the the show found the desire to allude to the fact that Mac was gay and then started to solidify that he was gay and the rest of the gang knew, but Mac had not yet been in a space where he wanted to come out. Right. Um, and then I can't remember for sure which episode it was. Correct me if you know, Caleb, there was a point where Mac did come out of the closet and then immediately went back in. And the people who star in and run the show tend to like look at reviews or be engaged with fans. And they started to see feedback from that decision, not come from like a, a generally it was critical hate place. Crime. It was hero or hate crime. Did he come out and then go back in? Or is that the one where he officially came out? I think that's isn't... the one where he came out. But did he come out in the cruise one too? He may have done that as well. There was a lot of a back Christian and forth, which yes. bothered people. Yeah. Where like they sort of re like they had him come out as a plot point and then wrote that off as a joke. Fans felt hurt by that, and so the show, the showrunners had taken into account how people had expressed feeling about that decision, and decided to do a really sincere episode where Matt comes out and means it. So it is in all its sunny glory with Danny DeVito and his horrible, horrible nose injury, feeling all stuffed up the entire episode. He comes to realize that. In order for Mac to find his pride, he has to be willing to like let express himself and let, let it out, out. and let he's got to let flow. the blood flow. And the end of the episode is this really beautiful, it's very like carefully choreographed dance, dance, dance yeah. where he expresses what this journey has been like for him as a character. 
um, and comes out to his dad through that dance. Frank gets what Mac has been trying to express throughout the episode, which is a really unique thing in the context of a Sunny episode for two characters to come and closer to one another. Most everything else in Sunny, it's not played for a joke. It's played Mm-mm. fully sincere and straight. It's yeah, it's completely straight up. It was it broke the mold of what I'd come to expect from the the, the other four episodes. This episode was absolutely nothing like what I expected it to be. Again, we run into the gambit of we're getting a little too close to reality for me personally and then that's that's a that's just a personal foible you know it is what it is however that dance sequence was astounding to watch it's stunning it's stunning however i think you and i had a, a conversation on the way home mm-hmm. you, you gave me a lift you're gonna have to give me a lift again that's fine where i, I figured. <laughs> in a lot of the ways i'm a bit of an oddity in, in in our age ranger i just don't get some things that other people seem to be with and so i felt a lot like frank in a lot of ways. However, at the end of the dance sequence, I didn't still quite get it. Maybe. Set that aside. This was the one episode where I was like, this one, it doesn't fit with the other four. And now I'm even more confused than I was at the beginning. About like, with thought, the style of the show? Yeah, because I thought I had it nailed in. I thought I dialed in. I finally was like, okay, this is what I can expect. This is what I'm, I'm quote unquote judging. And now you've thrown this monkey wrench into my my thought process the other the like the, the b plot of them trying to get the float ready and having cricket yeah stand in okay <laughs> whatever cricket. set that aside that was funny in, in its own way but also like not important the, the obviously the focus of the episode being this journey that frank and, and mac are on uh and it it just doesn't it just doesn't feel like the other episodes and and in a way that's that's good but it makes it very difficult for what, what, what will be the final verdict, I suppose. For me, it showed that, especially with as much staying power as they have presented and as many kind of different ways and directions you can take these characters, the fact that they took an opportunity to do something that interesting and that beautiful with Mac by, what was it, season 11 or 12? That one's season 13. 13. Season 13, my goodness. By the time they get to season 13, that they're able to embrace that wholeheartedly, take feedback, and do something constructive with it. I think we're very much in a space where we'll see like creators or showrunners of different things, if they see like criticism or backlash, kind of throw it back in the face of whoever presented it to them. And the fact that there, I think there is kind of an audience insert in some ways with Frank... To going alongside this uh, this personal journey for Mac that, again, we got a very limited window into with the really the one episode dedicated to it. So I, I think in that respect, it felt a little bit jarring. But it made me even more intrigued to see this character's journey and where, uh, where he had come from and just all the different aspects that we've gone to it. Because I, I know I came out of this five-episode viewing experience wanting to get to a point that uh, I talking to Melissa and going, hey, so we're going to be adding this to our list of shows we're watching. (laughs) (laughs) And and it's just a matter of when and how we uh, work things in. I found myself appreciating that by the time we finished watching these five episodes, that it was able to have these conversations to give its characters space to do interesting things and to thrive and to go in these interesting and artistic directions. Because it reminded me of some of those best moments of watching Scrubs where it's like, 
the fact that an artistic set piece of this level was executed with at least one party involved being a character that we have been along with every ridiculous and comedic phase mm. of this journey for and getting to see them do something like that is amazing. So- I agree, Ben. I think that this episode in honesty is what cracked me open and broke my brain because I became obsessed with It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia after watching this because I found it so shocking that the show I had imagined in one specific way, I kind of wrote it off as being like a silly comedy. I watched it when I just wanted a laugh. Watching this episode opened me up to imagining the people who make it and work on it differently, and I needed to know everything about it after this. So you could tell that there's a level of craft in this episode, that they're presenting that level of craft here it got me wondering where the craft exists or like how, what their process is like to create all the other episodes I've enjoyed so far. It's also tying back to, you know, the jokes that keep repeating through episodes and then throughout the show as a whole, this is sort of the final culmination of Rob McElhenney's body transformation, which he has done throughout the run of Sonny. So there was a season where there was fat Mac where he got Mm -hmm. fat. He gained like 30, 40, 30 or 40 pounds for the show. Purely for the bit, essentially. Like, the joke was just that Mac was going to get fat, and so he did that. The joke of him being fat, because so often you see on sitcoms as they go on, people get more beautiful because they get more money, and Mm -hmm. they're wealthier and have more resources and need to maintain their looks. So seeing a show where as it progressed, the the characters um, would be less physically fit than when you would expect them to, like... Mm -hmm. Yeah, but now he's taken it to the extreme of he's reached, he's finally reached that perfect male physique that he's been obsessed with throughout the mm-hmm. show. Always talking about body mass and always talking about gains. Dude, and the, the, the guy ripped is, Jesse Ventura. The guy he looks is, amazing yeah, in this episode. Absolutely. Or at least he looks like that, you know, that, that paragon. masculine ideal and paragon. Yeah. But now he's finally in a place where he can actually accept who he is as himself, I think is also a really like when you go through the full journey of the character. That's it's a, another aspect yeah, of that's a really good lens to, to being able to appreciate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think well, I think that lens is really important because otherwise it starts to feel like a political statement. And unfortunately, we live in a reality where everything gets turned into some kind of political statement. Well, Sonny has a long history of making political yes. statements. And see, that's one of the things that I don't tend to enjoy. Again, we go back to the issue of I'm here to escape my reality and I've got enough political crap thrown in my face every day. Um, however, if we look at it through the lens of this is the journey of the character, it means that much more. We, we take away the, the political statement and make it about the person. It's, it's so much more meaningful. And that matters. It still breaks the mold. So it still makes, quote unquote, judging the whole point of, of you trying to convince me that it needs an enemy. Mm-hmm. It still makes it really, really difficult. But that episode gains a lot more momentum and weight because... When you, in my opinion, when you take the politics out of it, it becomes much more meaningful. Well, and going back to that Chekhov's idea, like the fact that there's so much said and done, and that Frank's entire motivation in the episode is centered around the float and the parade. Yeah, which you're is, almost you're expecting you're almost expecting a parade finale of some kind, yeah, and it's absolutely. and it's the furthest thing from that, and it works so well. So I guess in a sense, it didn't break the mold. It did the exact opposite of what we expected. Yeah. Except we were starting to expect the opposite, and it did the opposite of that. <laughs> Keeps you on your toes. Subvert the already <laughs> subverted expectations. Yeah. So, of course, I would be 
more than willing to nominate an award it's always sunny in philadelphia with an emmy but i am not the judge on trial here steven ben do you think it's always sunny in philadelphia is deserving of an emmy award for outstanding comedy no I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no for, for, for several reasons. My first <laughs> is that It's Always Sunny doesn't meet the mold. It's been successful for 16 seasons by subverting the mold. Why do we want to put a label on it that is that flies against everything the show seems to show us that it wants and, 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 and is? That's my first reason. Secondly... When we look at the history of the show, it took, quote unquote, too long to get good. If shows eh, like... I wouldn't say if, it that way. Yeah, that's fair. But <laughs> if shows like Ted Lasso can come out and win on their first season... Miss Maisel did too. Miss Maisel. Mar yeah, The Marvelous Miss Maisel. If these shows are coming out at the same time, congruent with Sonny and winning on their first season, something is missing. There's a reason why they won instead of Sonny. In my mind, right? Again, I've only seen the five episodes. Um, I have You're not on season. trial. The show is. Right. So <laughs> well, I'm, 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 I'm being a good judge yes, and giving you my you. reason. Um, my third reason is, is purely personal. I don't necessarily care to watch more. Mm. I saw my five. They were entertaining. But I have like, I'm not going to. There's other shows that I would want to sit down and watch instead right now. And so it didn't hook me to come back to it. So it doesn't necessarily earn my vote. Okay, so now, now I know Ben's going to answer with, I'm assuming, the opposite. In fairness to you, you're speaking for the Emmy voters right now. I know. they have <laughs> the same viewpoint, apparently. Apparently. Well, and the issue with something that breaks the mold is that you almost feel like you have to create a category in order to bestow upon it what it may well deserve. And... The Emmys are not going to do that. No, probably <laughs> if not. we're just talking about objectively how that category seems to work, whatever seems to be the most exciting pick and is generating a lot of buzz and something that's had a lot of staying power is kind of the opposite of buzz. So it's kind of in that way mm -hmm. working against its own longevity if we're talking about rewarding or rewarding at an Emmy or, or if it had earned one like in its second decade of existence. I mean, speaking from just my own personal enjoyment of it, I think it would absolutely be deserving depending on what else it's up against. That's obviously the biggest challenge here. Like what other, yeah, what other comedies mm -hmm. in any given year are going to be the Versus reason it's always sunny. Yeah. Are going to be, it's like, why is it getting silver medal or worse? Because someone else got gold. Like, so what is it up against? But that said, in terms of, in in some ways, for the irreverent comedy that is stuck to exactly who it is, that has become something of a cultural staple, and frankly does not need an Emmy to justify how excellent it is, I think it's exactly where it should be, even if it never wins an Emmy. Ouch. <laughs> so, for the record, that's a no. no it's I, a very generous you know, no. I think, 
I know, no, okay. If I was on the Emmy voting committee, I would have taken care of this years ago and we would not be having this conversation. Uh, I would. Uh, so well, you would have given season five an Emmy. Because like the fact that we only went back 10 years, we should have looked back at its entire mm. run. But just, uh, for, yeah. just for fun to know, Rick and Morty first debuted in like 2014. It didn't win an award at the Emmys until 2020. Yeah. And Scott Martyr, who produced, who wrote for Sunny, so that the one five who six year window <laughs> sounds about right, and especially if that's when the the show really started to find its footing. Because that Shit's Creek win was its sixth season. Yeah, but if if the argument is that we're make, we're voting on it now, mm-hmm. yeah. I can't. I mean, I hear you. It's right? okay. I'm not fighting it. I've laid out my argument. It is up it's to a you, good listener, argument. now yeah. to decide. I and do think that the show itself does does mm-hmm. should have deserved a win. Before now, and I think there's something yeah. beautiful. I think, about so. That, in that regard, you and I, I are think the same you and page. I agree. It should have earned a win already. Yeah, and at this but point, staying power is, works against it. Yeah, if the argument is, does it deserve one now? Well, I'm sorry. It kind of sort of feels like that ship has sailed. I think there's something bit. very beautiful about the argument, though. That like, you know what? It doesn't need one anymore. Mm. That's true. That's I don't. I don't think it's sunny. If it has, it's one. not very sunny to be an Emmy award-winning show. <laughs> <It> just, <laughs> I mean, the episode itself, the gang tries to win an award, speaks volumes in this, in this instance. It doesn't really feel true to character if it does win. It, it would be like the beat-up car that you have had for years that you probably should have replaced by ne- by now, but has tremendous sentimental value for you and still does everything that you need it to, it would be like that vehicle winning the Indy 500. Mm. It just doesn't fit. <laughs> yeah. But for yeah, you, like it means everything in the world, and that's what's important. Sonny's a brilliant show. It is. I, I, I'll stand by that statement, even if I don't want to watch more of it. <laughs> it is brilliant. It's well done. It's well executed. And after we spent this entire episode breaking it down, it's still great. And I'm on summer vacation, so I will be getting caught up with you guys soon, I'm sure. <laughs> ben, I am so excited for you to see Reynolds versus Reynolds, the serial defense. Yeah, I'm going to have to watch that with you. Okay. Me I did too. just rewatch it. But... Movie night. <laughs> <laughs> I watched it today. <laughs> I think that's a beautiful way to close it. I think that, uh, listener, if you would like to explore It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, you can watch it on streaming on Hulu and is, of course, also available on FX. Stay tuned for more Scenes of Power coming up next on Storytelling Breakdown. the rings the scenes of power take nine. Oh, sorry take eight actually it's take seven anyway yeah yeah is that a joke based on how many people in the party have died yep yes oh, it is there we go well and, but you did <laughs> applaud us for being able to keep those a secret to this point we're yeah, six months good. in and we did not spoil all the departing of gandalf had, like, over 20 years to figure it out i didn't know though and it wasn't like i had watched the films and didn't understand who lived and who died I just true. had no experience with them yet. That's and okay. I thought Meme Man, a.k.a. Boromir, whose name I know now. There you go. I assumed he would make it since he was in the meme. But it looks like now we have two men who've been in memes, memefied, both died. 
We got so Gandalf. So mean equals die. Yes. You should predict that. Or maybe it's something about if you're a character who's so compelling that didn't get enough in the three movies, then the fans oh. want to make a meme of you. So Gandalf got his meme. Maybe. Boromir got his. That's a, that's an interesting concept. Just thinking of how many you know Lord, any Lord of the Rings memes that I've seen in like D and D groups. Not that I remember off top of mind. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I guess the ones that are so so common, like so pervasive in the culture of like. Yeah, one does not simply walk and you shall not pass her. Well, yeah. look, we're two characters down in this movie, so the other characters have more opportunities for lines in the next two which to get memes. To get memed. Maybe I'll recognize them for other memes. I don't know them off top. It was more like I, I would see I would see meme man. I'd go, oh, I've seen that guy before in this shot because it's from that meme. So within the context of this scene, the one where the orcs come and fight them and Boromir dies, is there reason to believe that he was weakened or like off his game because of the encounter he had with the ring prior like does the ring does the no. ring have negative psychological effects i mean he may have been in a weird mental state but like it he's a trained you. soldier so i think like once once the shit hit the fan and like Mm. The battle's on. He was like probably there, you know, physically. But yeah, he's so, also fighting like fifty guys to one. So there's a lot of guys. Yeah, he got shot from like thirty yards away. I don't. Yeah, yeah they did him dirty. They mm. they shot him when he was one. He was going at it melee style with a bunch of other orcs, and then they shot him. In the book, he's described as a pincushion. Like they don't just shoot him three times, which is tasteful in the movie. That they like, they really ruined him. It'd be he's, pretty he's brutal pretty, to he's see. Pretty 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 trucked in the book he's ugh, woof but yeah so for reference dear listener we're discussing the just kind of the tail end of the fellowship really taking a look at the relationship between boromir and aragorn through the scenes that happen in uh lothlorien a conversation they have and i don't think is in the theatrical version i think it's only in. it is it is that conversation yeah. is in the theatrical I mean, okay. sh- there are definitely shortened sequences from lothlorien like Galadriel's the preamble beforehand yeah. with the like as we're watching that i'm thinking to myself this is already five times longer than it is yeah. in the theatrical cut yeah so anyways but we're talking about the the conversation aragorn and boromir have in lothlorien and then the fight at amon hen in the falls of raros going into boromir's death at the hands of movie only character lurts that or the orc that shot Boromir did get a name, and it's not even. I don't. It's not said in the movie. It's not said. It might be in the credits. And it's in the credits, know. maybe or something. But his name is, he is like the leader Lertz. one. Yeah. yeah, the leader, the one with the bow that Aragorn mm-hmm. fights and decapitates when they get impressive. made because they they are birthed from like clay yes. birthing pods in the ground. Orcs, orcs are, orcs are yeah. terrifying. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's like the first one that's made, and then Saruman gives him the like. White handprint on the face is his mark. The white hand of Saruman. That becomes more important in the next movie. So uh, we actually brought a map in to the studio today to reference. The next movie, Aragorn and, and Legolas and Gimli spend all of their time in this section. Which is Rohan. Which is the country of Rohan. We'll get to that. Up the horse this lords. Point, yeah, they're cool. I love what? I love Rohan. <laughs> they ride horses. Horse lords? Yeah. Is that like uh, the, uh, the, the horse lords, Lord of yeah. the Rings version of horse girls? <laughs> you know, interestingly enough, this is a fun fact for oh the future. Boy. A lot of the extras you'll see of Rohan writers were women. Oh, that's cool. Because they have, they're dudes. like Viking. They're like they're horse very, Viking. Yeah, they're people. very Norse inspired. So but they had they really like long blonde, blonde hair. hair. 
And so when there's a like, if there's ever a shot with like hundreds of these Viking people writing, about half of them are actually women. But in the 2000 aughts, if you lived in New Zealand and you owned, you owned a, horse a horse and had long blo- and had long hair, they were like, "Come, yep. we will give oh. you armor. We'll and give you, you armor. We'll pay movie. you for the day and come on in." Yep. That's cool. Also, so we're getting to that point. Yeah, going back to the previous conversation about Lurts, it's like, oh, why did this uh, Urukai get a name? Merchandising, merchandising, merchandising. Ah. Look at that. He has a name. That's a weird. Lurts, Gandalf, and Gimli. Bookmarks. That's a weird I, I have, collection. I have Saruman as well, but that one's not anywhere near in as good of condition as these three. That's fair. But, like, why not? Okay, never mind. We're not going to get into why you have specifically these four, three bookmarks and not, like, others. But that's I think okay. I got them when I was a child, so I don't think I had much choice over what they that's been like of the collection. Fairs, ben? Hmm? Is it looks like it's from a book fair? Is it, like, or, Scholastic? Or it might have been, like, Ooh, when Borders yeah. was still a thing, maybe? Yeah, Borders. R.I.P. Borders. <laughs> so, anyways, we, we so we watched these two very, very different scenes. Because one is one Ar- is arguably three with the the tempting and the interaction. Okay, yeah. So we really yeah. did we did three because we did cover the ring, both te- tempting both Aragorn and Boromir. So really, what we're kind of sort of looking at over these three scenes is the dichotomy between Boromir and Aragorn, meme man and handsome man. Yes. Yes. What are I your know thoughts? their names now, though. I don't know. So I think that I'm impressed by, it seems like Shakespearean, the storytelling with all their fancy made up words and the drama and the presentation. And there's so, so many words to get to what they're saying. So I think that it's where I can recognize there's a lot of beauty in the filmmaking and in the work and craft that goes into that storytelling. And it just is not my personal style. Mm-hmm. That's fair. It's interesting as we've gone through this film that this is this is the character arc or the character arcs that we've we've preserved because we did not go into this with an outline of we're going to watch these exact scenes. Like now we had some we knew for a fact we're hitting this, but we didn't have everything specifically locked in. But you've gotten to watch the first encounter with Aragorn and see his early evolution, a ranger out in the wild, and and interact with him a little bit. We get to meet Boromir in the Council of Rivendell, and now kind of get to see how their interactions have gone to this point. And I guess thoughts on that progression now having gotten to spend some time with them. The evolution of their friendship. Taking what we've seen before and then considering what we watched today. I think it's impressive to see them have, I don't know if this word will be too much, have like a greater intimacy with each other versus feeling um, like there's these boundaries or this distance from the rivalry that they had going in. So it's neat to see it before they're, before Boromir's death that you get that closure of knowing that he and Aragorn are on good terms and that he fully entrusts Aragorn to see his kingdom or their kingdom to a safe place even in his passing or after his passing which is nice because it could have been a lot less resolved for both the characters and the viewer Mm -hmm. and when you consider the backdrop because when we were watching it Stephen you talked about just how the the enemies are on the move the fact that Aragorn makes that oath, I will not let the White City fall, has probably almost just as long odds as getting the ring destroyed. <laughs> yeah. So, like, on his deathbed, Boromir is an interesting character in the sense that he's he's still, his first concern is that he's failed his people. And on his deathbed, Aragorn does two things for Boromir. First, he recognizes the people of Gondor as his own. Mm. And, and, and Boromir repeats that. That's really important to him our people that's that's big because up until that point you haven't seen or heard Aragorn reference Gondor as his own in any way he's very he's very he's definitely divorced himself from that country and that and that group 
even though he is a ranger of the north, he's not recognized the fact that he is the king of Gondor. He's also not taken ownership of that title at all. Because and, for reference, we met him here. Yeah. And the White City is yeah. here. Right. Handsome so man for those who have yeah. been following. So About there's half there's a continent a, away. Half a continent between them. And even so, Aragorn's uh, lineage comes from the kings of an older kingdom of men, which was this up here in the north. It was called mm. Arnor. So Gondor really isn't necessarily his people. They were sister kingdoms. They were descended from the same line of kings. Okay, we'll set that aside for a minute. That's the first major important thing Aragorn does during Boromir's death, is he recognizes Gondor as his own. And that, that's huge for, for Boromir in particular, who's dying, because he sees a great man willing to, uh, to stand up with his people. So it helps takes a little bit of the burden off of him because he feels that he's failed and that the White City will fall, I and mean, he says that. The second major thing that Aragorn does is he, he gives Boromir that oath. He says, I will not let the White City fall. And that's a big deal because look where when you're referencing the map, uh, it's a hop, skip, and a jump from the White City to the land of the enemy. It's a huge fortress city, but yeah. it's also right on the enemy's doorstep. Yep. So that's yeah, that's a big, big deal. It's a big oath. Mm-hmm. One of the other really cool things that happens is the progression of the relationship. What we see in Lothlorien is is Boromir is willing to recognize Aragorn as, as an equal at this point. But then when we on his deathbed, or uh, Boromir finally recognizes Aragorn as his king. And he doesn't just call him a king. He says, my brother, my captain, my king. And that's, that's a big admission for a man who's been the man in charge for the, his entire life. It's pretty impressive for them to give each other that sense of peace in such a, an unbelievably heightened moment, right? Mm-hmm. That relationship, I think, is one of the emotional cores of the first movie in particular, especially when we get to these ending scenes, the, the death of Boromir. Sean Bean has even, uh, the actor, the actor. plays yep. Boromir, he's even said of his death as Boromir because he's got that, he's got a ridiculous track record of dying on screen. Most he of his characters said, that he plays die. Is a, yeah. what, Was what, it, once put together, it's a pretty hilarious YouTube supercut. Oh, yeah. <laughs> of just it's all of insane. the times. Question, though. Was this man typecast after dying so beautifully as Boromir, or did the deaths predate this role? Some of them predate it. Uh, Goldeneye predates it. it. But Um, then maybe the most significant to follow is I think Game of Thrones. Yeah, he probably got that role a little bit because of Boromir. Yeah, that makes sense. His role as Ned Stark in Game of Thrones is definitely. Whoa, pump the brakes. There's someone named Ned. In Eddard. Game of Thrones? Eddard. 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 Sorry. Okay. His nickname is Ned. <laughs> Eddard Stark. Yeah, Ned. I've never seen Game of Thrones. That's amazing. The well, same. okay. Now you know. Ned. <laughs> he dies. He dies. That's um, okay. In Game of Thrones. I like but... watching Game of Jones starring Leslie Jones. <laughs> <laughs> but the actor has said that, that, that uh, his favorite death on screen was definitely Boromir. Mm. I think his exact quote was, Peter Jackson really milked it. There was a lot of pathos there, which is very cool. So this is definitely a little bit of the emotional core of the movie, which can be kind of hard to see through the action and through the dialogue. And it's fascinating, too, because both of these characters were introduced, I don't know the time exactly, but fairly far into the movie itself, right? Yeah, probably like, an hour each. You meet Aragorn, well, Aragorn a little bit earlier. A little bit quite earlier, a bit but not into much. It, and then Boromir quite a bit more even into yeah. that. It makes sense to like save some of the major events happening with the cast that's going to make it all the way through all three movies. Mm-hmm. But that's interesting. 
to pick those two to be the cent- the core of this film. It I I really do. I'm not sure if it was. I don't know if that's the intent was that they would provide the emotional and co- core of the film or not. I mean, it makes sense. Because you do have you do have G- Gandalf's death, which is big, mm-hmm. which we covered last last episode, and that, I mean that the bridge of Kazadum, that death sequence for Gandalf and the music is just brilliant. And again, I don't think the that Boromir's death would have the same uh, gravitas without uh, Howard Shore's score to back it up. I mean, yeah. This, the whole series loses something if you don't have the right music. I mean, you know, it shouldn't go without saying we should. We're here to talk about it, so let's talk about it. But yeah, the music, the presentation, the camera work especially is is so fitting Spot for the on. scenes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Although we were talking about the helicopters for some of the shots while we were watching this, and if, if I'm recalling the piece of trivia correctly, Sean Bean was terrified of helicopters and he would literally climb the mountain to would the not for fly. like two hours. Uh-huh. <laughs> in full gear he would just get, because he did not want to ride the chopper. <laughs> the scenes that they were shooting in the mountains that we, for the most part, skipped <laughs> over in between Rivendell and Moria, where you know the last scene that we covered, shot, they would shoot in the mountains. So they would helicopter up to where they were shooting, shoot their scenes, helicopter back. And Sean Bean was terrified of flying, particularly in helicopters. So he'd get into co- he'd wake up earlier than the rest of the cast, get into costume, and hike up the mountain in full costume with all of his props to where they were shooting because he wow. refused, adamantly refused to fly. And Vigo Mortensen, the, the man who played Aragorn, said like it was one of the most intimidating things because this man has been up two and a half, three hours earlier than me, and he's now hiked half the mountain, and now he's shooting these scenes. Mm-hmm. And I'm exhausted already, and I flew up here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? like, uh, so there's definitely a, there's a major physicality to the role that you don't yeah. get to see on screen. Um, as much, I'm sure it carries through though. Like as I think far it as does, like his presence, he, he looks dirtier than the rest of them. I'll be straight Sometimes, up honest. Yeah. There's a lot of times where Boromir, like he looks like he's living out in the wilds. True, very true. Well, and the fighting that he does in the sequences at Amenhen that we just watched, it's it's a little bit less technical than what Aragorn mm-hmm. seems to be doing. It's a little bit more brute force. It's a little bit more brute force, a little bit more visceral, but yeah. it comes across really well. Mm-hmm. Like you see just how skilled Boromir is, and he is overwhelmed and ki- and eventually killed. And whereas Aragorn, who is with Legolas and Gimli, manages to survive. I was really impressed throughout all three scenes that we watched tonight how Peter Jackson seems to have some restraint in how he chooses to frame the camera for these scenes. Because even though there is such grandeur, both in the environment and in the story itself, he really spends a lot of time in close-up shots or extreme close-ups with the characters and like allowing their experience to be centered Lothlorien especially is one of those places because that set is so like it's this elf city in the trees it's It's all beautiful and they've got these curving wooden like grown naturally staircases or whatever and yeah most of that entire sequence is just close ups it's, it's like we have this majestic space and And I'm going to let the actors do the work it's all about the characters yep Mm -hmm. And so, and then that also gives you a chance to really appreciate just how stellar the actors that they got to play the main characters, and even yeah. the ones that aren't main. Honestly, uh, so I don't know if you recognized him, Mark Zoxus, Zoxus. That's a difficult name to say. Lord Celeborn, uh, Lady Galadriel's consort oh, slash husband. Right. That's Guy de Lusignan 
from the kingdom of heaven. That's yes. He doesn't have the beard, and I, I always know. he looks familiar every time. And he's right? taken the extent to which he is being a prick from about a nine down to about a four. four. Yeah, <laughs> but it's the same actor, so it's a chance for even the 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 minor actors on screen to really kind of show what they've got, mm-hmm. and and the camera work really serves that. It shows the 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 camera work and the 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 visual is carried not by the set but by the actors on doing their working their craft and Um, they get to do such a subtlety with their performance too like there are times when it's big but in a lot of those close-ups it's like really just a little move with their eyebrow Mm -hmm. or or just a tear running down the cheek well and you mentioned (laughs) no toby mcguire crying (laughs) no oh man no you mentioned that too larissa even though i do that in real life when we were first watching (laughs) the scenes with with galadriel and caliborn um, where she would make eye contact with characters. And you asked while we were watching it first, why are these characters reacting so violently to just making eye contact with her? Yeah. And then later we find out, well, she's actually talking to them. Welcome, yeah. Frodo of the Shire. Yeah, that, that That's a level crap. of multitasking I can't imagine. <laughs> it's insane. She's had a lot of years to get it right. Mm-hmm. She has. She's That's like talking to someone and texting at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> It's insane. I, I can't do it, man. If I try to do that, I end up typing what I'm trying to say yep. or saying what I'm, what I'm trying, trying to type. type yep. and it's, ugh, it's bad. But she's got Wires crossed. She's also like just as old as Gandalf, if not older. In thinking about this one and just like the character arcs we've followed, like there's something to like the beauty and the artistry of long form storytelling in terms of who you can focus on. Because obviously Fellowship needs to establish Frodo and Sam. We get a lot of wonderful moments with Gandalf the Grey. We establish Aragorn and Arwen. We need to spend her time with her in Two Towers along with Eowyn mm-hmm. when we get there. Yeah. Uh, and they do a wonderful job with Aragorn and Boromir, but then in future installments, while Merry and Pippin are mainly comic relief in Fellowship, we definitely get more time and development with them. Mm-hmm. While the dynamic between Legolas and Gimli is tense, Mm-hmm. Their in their interactions develop as well, more so in the future. They become so probably the best. We'll be able to spend to more time with more members of the party. As I'm saying this, I'm actually kind of thinking of like Vox Machina because they spent the entirety yeah, of season one sure. mostly on Percy and Pike, and then got to spend a lot of time developing everybody else in the second season. Like Stranger yeah. Things. Yeah, yep. Yeah. No, that's conversations on my mind. For sure. Anytime mm-hmm. you've got a large party that is the center focus, you're going to spend time with individual characters or pairings of characters. So, like like Ben said, the first movie is definitely you're establishing Frodo and Sam. You get some really cool interactions with Gandalf, and then you've got Boromir and Aragorn. Then you move on, and you get to develop some of those other uh, relationships, especially now as the party has split. So, Frodo and Sam are going their own way, and the rest of the party is going into Rohan. And that's where we're headed for the next movie. Unless anyone has anything else they want to cover, we would get to our... It's percentage time. Yeah, <laughs> where are we at? I was hoping that the emotional gravitas would help us out, but I'm I'm actually a little skeptical. Uh, and yeah. for reference, because we had to go back and check, we were at 43 percent last time. We were time, at 43 so. last time. We should we should we should get a big whiteboard and stick it above <laughs> our recording space and graph the numbers so we can see. All right, all right, this is how we go. And just like and like Real mark and mark each percentage procedure. with like a character's like zero is Sauron is Sauron and then go yeah. our way up. I hate to yuck on y'all's yums. But I shall. I just it's just not for me. I don't think it's anything that's the film's fault. I'm dropping down to like twenty seven. Uh, Ouch! So much. There's a lot there. Yeah. There is. I'm Solid glad that you guys like it. I'm happy for you. <laughs> I feel like we're probably this is probably not going to be the only time we've had to say yuck on yums because mm-hmm. though we haven't recorded it quite yet, 
um, I might be overly yum yucking of what we're about to, <laughs> so, for what we have done. So we'll see what happens. But next time we will be continuing with the Lord of the Rings, the Two Towers. Thank you for listening. Please leave a review, give a rating, subscribe, and share with your friends from wherever you get your podcasts. It all helps Storytelling Breakdown reach more people and grow our community. Check out the Storytelling Breakdown blog, past episodes, reach out, leave a comment, send a message. You can find Storytelling Breakdown on Facebook and Instagram, and you can reach our team at info at storytelling-breakdown.com. Again, people, that is info at storytelling-breakdown.com, not underscore. You can also find our mini-series episodes for Campaign Diaries and RPG Decades at our website and where podcasts are found. Our theme music is by Kurt Remke. Our logo is by Daniel Church. Our podcast is hosted wherever you get your podcasts by John Dawkins and Wayne Shout Productions. Everyone has a story. These are some of our favorites. And this has been Storytelling Breakdown. SP Wayne Shout Productions. Wayne Shout. <laughs>